familiar with Guacamo Puccini. He was a great composer. In fact, uh, many consider him one of the, the great composers of operas in world history. He was stricken with cancer in 1922, but he, he still had this one final work he wanted to do, uh, but his students wanted him just to rest and preserve his strength, but he was going to persevere and he was going to write this, uh, this work, and it's called Turindo, which many consider his best. And so though his students encouraged him just to rest and, and try to recover from his cancer, he persevered. And in fact, he said, if I do not finish my music, my students will. 1924, uh, he died of cancer. And his students finished uh, his work. Um, and in 1926, the premiere was held in Milan for this piece, Turindo. And it was under the direction of Puccini's favorite student, Arturo Toscanini. Everything um, went well that night until the point in the score came where he had finished his part before he died. He had not completed it. And Toscanini, with his face wet with tears, stopped the production, put down his baton, turned to the audience and said, thus far the master wrote, but he died. And then he picked up his baton and cried out, but his disciples finished his work. And then they finished the production and it was a big success. Now, there, you know, when you think about uh, that little analogy, um, there is, I think, some resemblance to our own master, except he did finish the work. Um, our master died, but then he was raised from the grave, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. In fact, before he died, he said, it is finished, tell us die. And then he was raised, which was God's signal that indeed the work was finished, and yet we recognize that his work, his victory is a progressive victory, progressive triumph. And that's what he has called the church to be about. In a very real sense, continuing the work that he has finished by preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God until the whole world is filled with his glory. If you weren't here last week, you could listen to that sermon online. We saw that the point of creation, the point of redemptive history, is that God's purpose to fill the entire world, every nook and cranny, with his glory presence. In other words, uh, as you read Revelation 21, we see that the goal of creation, the goal of God's purposes in redemptive history and in his son Jesus is that the whole world one day will be a temple city, a garden city, a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus has finished the work that must be accomplished in order for that to be a reality, and yet we recognize it is a progressive triumph, and we take part in that. But let's be honest. Finishing Jesus' task in an instrumental sense is costly. 
Uh, we, we, we've seen that even $22,000. I mean, Lottie Moon, and that's just a small portion of the pool just for Southern Baptist missionaries. And on top of that, it comes like a mustard seed, doesn't it? Kingdom growth is slow. Sometimes it's imperceptible. It's kind of like a, a snowfall on a winter night. You don't hear it or see it. You wake up and you go, where did this come from? Uh, that's often how the kingdom comes. In fact, Jesus says that. And then there's the monumental need. More than 3,000 people groups are still unreached, unengaged. Unreached, unengaged, is, it means that less than 2% of this people group have been engaged or reached with the gospel. 3,000 still remain. 250 million or 200, yeah, 250 million people still unengaged. And then in the U.S., there is another group that's growing. It's those without a religious affiliation. That was unheard of three decades ago, four decades ago. But it, uh, this group has grown 28% from 2007 to 2012. So where will the energy and the costly commitment come from um, that this mission demands? That's the question we have to ask. Where does it come from? One thing's for certain. It's not going to come from just knowing the need. I mean, you can hear the need. You can see it on a video or something like that. And it may stir you for a moment. But it's hard to be animated by a need that you don't see yourself. Okay? It's hard to be. That's why we have to go. Uh, so here's what I believe. Until the story of redemption grips us. Okay? And the story of redemption begins in Genesis 3.15. It takes us all the way to the end of the Bible. Until the story of redemption grips us at our very, in our very soul, okay? Willingness for costly mission will elude us. Willingness for costly mission will elude us. In fact, uh, recognize that Christians are now the most persecuted group on earth and in nine of the ten countries where we're most persecuted, it, these are Muslim countries. And the one country that's not Muslim is North Vietnam. Uh, so to take the gospel to the nations is, requires a costly commitment. And that's why I want us to consider tonight, and that's what we looked at last week, this, this story of redemption. Because I believe the more we understand it, the more we can connect the dots the more it will grip our hearts. And the more we're gripped by it, the more we will be provoked to costly mission. So if you would look with me in Genesis chapter 1, and of course we spent some three years in Genesis, didn't we? So we're not beginning over in Genesis. Though I think it would benefit us to go back through it. And I want us to look at a programmatic passage. What I mean by programmatic, it just kind of sets the program for the Bible. Sometimes we read this and then we just kind of move on to bigger and better things, or at least are in our perception. But in verses 26 to 28, the pinnacle of God's creation, we see the program of the Bible as far as humanity goes. And Moses writes, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Now, it's interesting that you have the plural there, Let us make man in our image. I don't think that's the angelic host. First of all, the angels are not involved in creation. Secondly, angels are not created as the image of God. I think that's clearly uh, a, a very... Um, I think Moses is writing greater than he knows. I think that this certainly 
reflects a plurality in the Godhead. I don't think Moses necessarily has a full-blown uh, Trinitarian theology at this point, but there is, a, there is a, an awareness of some kind of plurality in the Godhead. There's not three gods, there's not more than one God, but there is plurality in this Godhead. And he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. That's a very important word, dominion. And over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock. And notice, and over all the earth. That's a very important prepositional phrase. Over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man created man. Or God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this is what is known as the cultural mandate. That's the famous description for this passage. Maybe you've heard of the cultural mandate. It's right here in this passage, the cultural mandate. And there's five aspects to this cultural mandate. First, it says that God blessed them. Verse 28. You know what that means? That means the cultural mandate is not a burdensome task. Okay? That's, that's exactly what that means. It's not some, some kind of burdensome rule, but it's an expression of God's good will over His image bearers. Okay? So it is a blessing to be a part of God's program. That's what we were designed for. When we choose any other program for our lives, it's chasing after the wind. It's just utterly foolish. It's vanity of vanities. There's blessing in carrying out the cultural mandate of God, God's program for the image of God. In fact, there's an element of command there. In other words, God blessed them. God is calling them to spread this blessing to the ends of the earth. And and that is strongly inferred because you see the language of over all the earth. You see it twice. You see it there. And, and, and that brings us to the second thing. It says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I want to give you a word here. In the, in the Greek translation of, of Genesis, which the New Testament writers used, they're writing to primarily Greek-speaking audiences, and so they would have used what is known as the Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see the words in capital LXX. Uh, LXX is, is shorthand for... The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that word there, that uh, be fruitful and multiply, axano, A-U-X-A-N-O. I give it to you because we're going to be back to it at the end. So remember that word. It's a word that's used often in the New Testament, and I believe intentionally. So he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with image bearers who will glorify God. So the cultural mandate here at this point does not anticipate a fall. Well, certainly we know God knows the future. Uh, We're not open theists here, but just as Moses is writing, if you haven't read Genesis 2 and 3, you don't anticipate a fall here. So at this point, what we see is that we carry out this by just having babies. And before the fall, you're having perfect image bearers. You're just reproducing those who will perfectly image God. 
Okay? And so that's the second aspect of this, um, this mandate. You're just reproducing babies who are eager to do God's will. Wouldn't that be beautiful? I've had four. And so far, maybe the fifth one. The first four aren't eager to do that, right? Well, I could have a hundred, and that's not going to happen. Um, thirdly, notice, feel the earth. What does that infer? They were not to remain where they were. They're in the Garden of Eden. We saw last week that the Garden of Eden is the first Holy of Holies. These are priest kings in the Holy of Holies, serving God in the Holy of Holies. It's the first temple. But they are to now expand the borders of the garden until the whole earth is Edenized with God's glory. That's very clear. Fill the earth. He's telling Adam and Eve, fill the earth. Don't be content right here. I put you here in this plot. And now as my priest kings, as my vice kings, you extend the borders. Extend the borders of the garden until the whole world is filled with my glory. We saw, we saw last week that that is a hope throughout the Old Testament. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Psalm 57, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let the whole earth be filled with your glory. Habakkuk 2 says, may the whole earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so this is the purpose of creation. It's the purpose of man. We were called to be agents of God's glory. Okay? And then he says, not only are you to fill the earth, you're to subdue the earth. Again, subdue it. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That is, subdue the earth. Both infer that they weren't to stay where they were. And then notice, rule, have dominion. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens. And then notice in verse 26, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Um, we need to be reminded there was a creeping thing that came into the garden. Adam and Eve had dominion over this creeping thing. We'll be back to that in just a moment. Um, in fact, it seems when you consider here the notion of the image of God, it's God making Adam as his image that enables him to carry out this commission. Okay? Because the, the image of God here is never defined. You know, there's been a whole lot of ink spilled on what does it mean to be the image of God? Of course, the reformers would take uh, verses like Colossians 3.10 where it says we're renewed in the new man after the image of God in knowledge. And then they'll look at Ephesians 4.24 says we're renewed in holiness and righteousness in the new man. And so what they'll do is they'll take these passages and they'll say um, the image of God in man is essentially the, the knowledge, the righteousness, the holiness of God. Of course, we know after the fall that uh, this image wasn't lost, but it was tarnished. It was marred by sin, okay? But it appears here that to be the image of God is the very thing we have to be to carry out God's purposes that we see in this passage. Uh, the image consists of those qualities that equip us to be his vice kings, and this is clearly kingdom language. I mean, we're, we're kings, ruling, having dominion. That's kingly language. So we were created as royalty, vice royalty, if you will. And so that clearly seems to be the case. And it's also suggested by the fact 
that in the ancient Near East... Now, let me, let me just preface this. Moses did not borrow his theology, okay, from the ancient Near Eastern religions. I believe the ancient Near Eastern religions were a parody of the true religion, all right? But we would be naive to think that there weren't some elements of truth in all these religions because even in these false religions... They were created by people who were image bearers, albeit marred image bearers. So there's elements of truth even in cults. That's what makes them so deceptive, okay? And so he's not barring his religion from these other uh, sources. But it, it is important to understand the times, what would have been understood by the original audience, Uh, There's guys like John Walton that have been very helpful here. In the ancient Near East, what you would have um, is that the gods were seen to subdue and rule through their kings. So all these gods had their kings and their rule was expressed through these kings. Well, we recognize that All of us were created with these qualities, and so all of us were created in this sense to rule on behalf of God. In this way, the the, the kings reflected the glory of these false gods. Furthermore, these ancient Near Eastern kings would often set up images of themselves in territory that they had uh, conquered to reflect that this was their territory. It was possessed by them. And these images reflected that reality. You see that in Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the statues. You see it throughout. And, and so in a real sense, we as the image of God reflect that this is God's world. Okay? But it also reflects the fact that we are created with this kingly quality. And so after uh, what you have, God in Genesis 1... He kind of subdues chaos. Now, there's no chaos. When I say chaos, I don't mean that there's anything fallen until sin enters the world. But you see kind of chaotic language in Genesis 1, 2. Listen, the earth was without form and void, okay? So it almost is like God created this matter. Uh, you know, I, I, I get this picture of Plato that he's got a form. He's got a form, okay? So he created it, and it was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. All of a sudden, God's Word comes forth, and all of a sudden, you see order out of chaos. And what he does is he rules over creation, and now he's going to fill creation. He's going to fill creation with, with plants and animals, um, he's going to fill it with, um, you know, the luminaries, the stars, the, the, the moon, the planets. And in the real sense, we image God in that way. We fill the earth. We take dominion over the earth, reflecting the glory of God, even in his creation program. In fact, uh, Adam's responsibility in Genesis 2, verse 15, to work. We saw this last week. Uh, where he says uh, he put him in the garden to work and keep it. Um, That's the idea we saw of a priest working and and keeping the tabernacle and the temple. But this also involved protecting the garden from unholy um, 
and, you know, unholy uh, invading influences like the serpent. Now, it certainly doesn't clearly say that, but it's strongly inferred for two reasons. First of all, notice again at the end of verse 26, he had rule over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Well, there's a serpent that comes into the garden and he creeps over the earth. And Adam, as a priest king, had the responsibility to take dominion and to rule over that creeping thing. All right? His responsibility was to cast the serpent out of the garden. He didn't. And then you have the temptation and the fall that flows out of that. But secondly, the priests themselves later in Israel's tabernacle and temple had that very responsibility. They were, they were responsible for guarding the precincts of the temple from that which is unholy and profane. And so we know that instead of Adam taking dominion over the serpent, the serpent took dominion over him. There's a fall. Adam represents us. Uh, through one man entered the world and death through sin and death to all men for all have sinned in Adam. Adam represented us as our federal head. And as a result, all mankind is born in a state of sin and misery. All right? Now, here's the question. After the fall, does God renege on this mandate? No. The mandate continues. But now it continues in a fallen context. In other words, after the fall, this mandate we read in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 will take a gospel to be carried out. In fact, I want you to see clearly. We're just going to go through a few texts. Uh, Genesis 9. Just go with me through Genesis. Genesis 9, 1. Notice, God blessed Noah and said to them, and his sons, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's after the flood. This is a new creation. What does that sound like? Well, it's very clear that uh, this is the same mandate that was given before the fall. And then in verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Well, that's the, that, that's the cultural mandate. Then you look over in chapter 12... Abraham's covenant, the covenant made with Abraham, language is very similar. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So now, God's going to bless, but it's going to come through the line of Abraham. Okay? And he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, note this universal impulse. All the families of the earth are going to find their blessing in the family of Abraham. And then if you look over in chapter 17, chapter 17, verse 2, God says to Abraham, that I make a, make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. What does that sound like? That's Genesis 1. And then verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. What does that sound like? Genesis 1. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Then if you look over in chapter 22, now this is a very important passage because I want you to remember this. 
This passage is going to be picked up in Daniel 7, a crucial chapter in the Old Testament. Genesis 22, verse 17 says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. That's Genesis 1 language. And your offspring... Now, offspring can be singular or plural, right? Like sheeps. It's not sheeps or fishes. In Alabama it is, but not here. It's sheep or fish. It could be plural or singular. We're going to realize that it, it's, it's initially plural, but it's going to end up being a singular promise. We'll see that in a moment. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. His being singular. So not only is this going to be carried out, he's going, there are enemies to subdue. And your offspring, your seed, will subdue his enemies. And in your offspring, notice, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Isn't that interesting? So this mandate hasn't gone away. Okay, It's now being carried out in a fallen context where God will either judge or save based on how the subject responds to the offspring of Abraham. Chapter 26. Notice in chapter 26. Verse 3. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. Now I believe it's going to go beyond the land of Canaan. We saw that in Revelation 21. Uh, Canaan land is pedagogical. It's, a, it's just a teaching tool. It's like training wheels. Um, it's preparing them as this land flowing with milk and honey, what's one day going to be universal in scope. It's, let, let me use this illustration Greg Bill has often used. Uh, God comes, to, uh, your dad comes to you uh, before your graduation from high school. And he says, when, when you graduate from high school, I'm going to give you, an, it's the year 1900, by the way. 1900. So uh, your dad comes to you in the year 1900. He says, I'm going to give you, when you graduate from high school, a new horse and buggy. Well, that's a great promise, okay? But between the time of your graduation and the time of that promise, guess what's invented? A car. Well, you graduate from high school. Your dad, instead of giving you a horse and buggy, has given you a car. Now, has he been faithful to his promise? Yes, but it goes beyond your capacities, okay? Now, that analogy breaks down somewhat because God knows when he, when he promises this land that he is going to make the whole earth a land flowing with milk and honey. But for the human subject, we have, we have no capacities for that. There would have been no capacities as someone in the year 1900 to understand what a car is. You'd have, you'd have thought you were watching the Jetsons or something like that. And so um, this land is not just Palestine, it's the world. You go, are you forcing that? No, that's exactly what Romans 4.13 says. If you want to look it up later, we, you, we'll just look, you can look at that later. God promised Abraham the world. For instance, Psalm 37 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Jesus changes that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the what? The earth. So it's been, let me give you a fancy term, eschatologized, all right? The whole earth now is the land flowing with milk and honey. And so we see here this promise. And he says, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, verse 24. 
verse 24, I am the God of Abraham, your father, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Chapter 28. Notice in chapter 28, verses 3 and 4. God Almighty bless you. This is Isaac to Jacob. And make you fruitful, fruitful and multiply. What does that sound like? That's Genesis 1. Um, that you may become a company of peoples. I love that. A companies of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Then verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. This is Jacob he is speaking to. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. Wow. The borders, sounds like, will be expanded. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, guess what's going to have to happen for all the families of the earth to be blessed? At this point, um, Babel has taken place and all the families of the earth are distributed across the world. Something has to happen for this, for this to be accomplished. And then in chapter 35, chapter 35, I know this is kind of tedious going through this, but I want you to see the full effect here. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And it's beginning to be portrayed or fulfilled, if you will, in, in the nation of Israel in Egypt. This very promise. Notice in chapter 47. I'm just kind of giving you a water ski version of this. Uh, turn over to Genesis 47, verse 27. So Israel's in the land now. Remember, Joseph went in the land. Then all the brothers and Jacob came into the land because there's a famine in Israel, famine in Canaan. He says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen. They gained possession in it, notice, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And then over in Exodus, let's just, Exodus 1, we see they're still in the land. Notice verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Exodus 1, 7, you can see up on the screen. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the whole land was filled with them. What does that sound like? That's Genesis 1. You can't get away from Genesis 1 and understand your Bible. And then in verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the Egyptians are oppressing them, the more they multiplied. And that's a universal principle. At Southern, I've noticed the harder the schoolwork, the more babies the students have. Have you, not, have you noticed that? That's why, that's why seminary students come in here and they just... Reproduce left and right. <laughs> professors, the press. I don't know if that's in there. Some of them have twins. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. I just, 
Very interesting. So you, you see the beginning of this fulfillment, but not all is well. After God delivers them, and Moses goes up on the mountain for their law, what happens down at the base of the mountain? They're building a calf to worship. These guys are idolaters to the core. It's very clear that though these promises have begun to be fulfilled, the, the, the ultimate promise has not been fulfilled yet. And so Moses, notice over in chapter 32, Moses makes a prayer. It's a very interesting prayer. Verse 13, Exodus 32. I've got it up on the screen. Remember, or verse 33 rather, chapter 32, verse 33. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all of this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses is appealing to God to remember his promises to the patriarchs. Okay? And so in response to the promise, or in response to the prayer, the promise is restated in Leviticus 26, verse 9. Leviticus 26, verse 9. Notice... I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. So God responds to Moses' prayer. Remember your servant Abraham that you have promised. He, he, to use the Puritan's language, he sues God. He sues God. He calls God to count for the promises he's made in the past because he knows God cannot... Uh, Go back on his promises. That's a point of way for us to pray as well. And so you see here uh, the promise of this fulfillment. And then Deuteronomy 7.13 is another passage where you see that. And we could go on and on. And I know we're running out of time. Notice in Deuteronomy 7.13. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds. And the young of your flock. And so it's out of this self-aware context. Israel is very aware of Genesis 1. Okay? They're very aware that the, the fulfillment of Genesis 1 is going to come through their family line. They're very aware of that. Um, it's going to be achieved through the seed of Abraham that you read Psalms like Psalm verse 8. So turn over to Psalm verse 8. And in Psalm verse 8, we're just going to look at two more passages and then we're going to get to the New Testament. Psalm verse 8. Notice this beautiful psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the goal of creation. The majesty, God's name, the fame of God's name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Why would you use me? That's what the psalmist is pondering. Notice, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion. Where's that language from? Genesis chapter 1. 
You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. So dominion language is kingly language. Only kings have dominion, and yet it's the dominion of a greater king. And so you've got this great king who's entrusted this task to human kings, human image bearers. You've crowned him and says, uh, you have put, notice, all things under his feet. All things are to be brought in subjection under the feet of the image bearer. All sheep, oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It appears that God's majesty on the earth will be achieved through this ideal image bearer through whom dominion has been given and all things placed under his feet. And Psalm, this psalm was written by David. And so we can strongly infer at this point in Israel's history that it's going to be achieved through the throne of David. Remember the covenant God made with David? It's going to, he says, it's going to be your son's going to build my temple. And he's going to have an everlasting kingdom. So it's going to come through an anointed one from the son, from the, the throne of David, the son of David himself. That this is going to be achieved. One more passage in, in the Old Testament. We could just spend forever here. Notice Daniel chapter 7. Um, Daniel, um, what you have here is a vision. The king uh, has a vision. And Daniel interprets this vision. Um, Belshazzar's vision. In verse 13 of chapter 7. It's on the, on the board. Uh, I saw... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. So the Ancient of Days is on a throne and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion. Hmm, interesting. Same language you see in Genesis 1. And glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. We shall not pass away. You could go on, but notice verse 27, what the result of this dominion is. Verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Here's the deal. When we sinned in Adam, we lost the dominion. We lost it. And this one, like the Son of Man is going to be given this dominion. He's going to defeat these four beasts that come out of the sea, representing um, um, Babylon, the Medes-Persians, Greece, and then Rome. But these are just reflective of all the kingdoms of this world. And he is going to uh, defeat these enemies of God, and he's going to restore dominion back to the people of God. Restore dominion. He's... In other words, he's restoring the image. He's restoring the capacity to image God and to rule on his behalf. Now let's take it to the New Testament. Running out of time. Let me just briefly say these. 2 Corinthians 1.20. You can write it down. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All these promises we read in the Old Testament... Find their fulfillment. All means all. Okay? All the promises. Not some, not most. All the promises of God. What are the promises of God? All the promises you read in the Old Testament. They find their yes and amen 
in the man Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.16. In Galatians 3.16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. We just read what those promises were, right? And it does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So the seed, the offspring, who's going to bless the nations and judge the enemies of God and restore the dominion back to the people of God is through this man from the tribe of David, from the family of Abraham, the man Jesus Christ. Okay? So, um, now, Ephesians 1, verse 20. I know this is a lot of material, and, and I know you are praising God that this is not normally how I preach But if you could grasp this, you're going to have a better understanding of your Bible. In Ephesians 1, there's a mystery revealed to the Apostle Paul that God is going to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Now that that, that verb, sum up all things, the noun version is found in Hebrews 8 where it says this is the main point. We have a great high priest seated at the right hand of God. The verb can literally mean he is bringing back heaven and earth to the main point for which it was created in Jesus Christ. What did he create the earth to be? His temple. What did he create man to be? His image bearers who will rule in his temple, who will serve as his priest kings in his temple. And now you're going to, have an, you're going to see this manifested in Ephesians 1, 20 to verse 23. Notice Uh, He's talking about this working of his great might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. That's the Psalm 110 language. In the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That is clearly an allusion to Daniel 7. And above every name that is named, not only this age, but the age of the one to come. Notice, and he has put all things under his feet. What is that from? Y'all remember? Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, that you care for him? You've placed all things under his feet. Well, guess what? We lost everything that was under our feet in the fall. And now in the resurrection, all things have been put under the feet of Jesus. That's a remarkable passage. In fact, you see it again in 1 Corinthians uh, 15... 27. In 1 Corinthians, notice this. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. All things. And then, one more passage, Hebrews 2. Listen to this. Verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I love that. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Of the sin, or the son of man that you care for him? What is that? Psalm 8. Which obviously is an allusion to Genesis 1. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with all glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Of course, we saw that happen in the resurrection. But notice, now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's a done deal because of the resurrection, because of the ascension. But yet at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. It's already but not yet. 
That's the role of the church. All right? All things will be placed in subjection to Him. But yet, at present, we don't see everything in subjection to Him. It's a progressive triumph. He has restored dominion, remember? Daniel 7, verse 27. He's restored dominion. How does He do it? He has given us new birth. He has sealed us by the Spirit of God. And He has formed a people, a royal kingdom of priests, Revelation chapter 1. And now, we're going to take uh, an instrumental role in God's purposes to bring all things in subjection to Jesus Christ. That brings us to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, Jesus' last command in Matthew 28. This is very interesting. Verse 18, Jesus came to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. All nations. Notice. Panta ta ethne. All the nations. It's the same phrase used over and over again in Genesis. You're going to possess the nations, God tells Abraham. You're going to possess the, the gates of your enemies. And all the nations, same, same exact phrase. All the nations are going to be blessed through your seed. Who's the seed? Jesus. But yet not all things are in subjection to him yet. So there's a great commission entrusted to us. By the way, the great commission is the cultural mandate post-fall. Matthew 28 is Genesis 1 after the fall. Genesis 1, in other words, will be carried out and achieved, certainly instrumentally through Jesus, or or, um, effectively through Jesus, but instrumentally through this great commission, which is essentially the cultural mandate after the fall. Because now, for things to be brought in subjection to Jesus, they must be saved, (laughs) or humans must be saved. And what's interesting here, when he says here in Matthew that all the nations, he's been given authority, um, this is an allusion to Deuteron or, or Daniel chapter 7. Man, 7 o'clock. Now, related to this, and, and I will give me five minutes and we're done. All right. I want to come back to that word exano. I told you a long time ago that that word is found in Genesis 1 in the Greek translation be fruitful and multiply. Or you, can, you could actually translate it increase. Okay? That word increase, it's, it's, it's just used time and time again in the New Testament. I want to give you a couple of examples, okay? Uh, first of all, I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 2. Golly. This is two sermons, three sermons. See, I don't normally preach like this, and that, I, it's hard for me to rele- relegate my time. So we saw in Ephesians 1 that... The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in O. That's verse 22 and verse 23. So Christ has brought all things, brought under his feet, and he's filling the church that he may be all in all. Notice in Ephesians 2, verse 
21 and 22, he's talking about the church, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling for God. But notice verse 21. In him the whole structure being joined together grows. That's the word. Genesis 1 verse 28. It increases. It increases. It grows. It grows into a holy temple. What did I tell you last week? The goal of creation. For God to create this world-encompassing temple. Which is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful, multiply, increase, fill the earth. And then one more passage. Colossians 1. And we'll close. Notice in verse 6. The gospel has come to the Colossians. The gospel, the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you. Notice verse 6. As it has in the whole world, and it's bearing fruit and increasing. Same verbs as Genesis 1. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, increase, multiply, fill the earth. It's going to be achieved. It's through the gospel. Bearing fruit and increasing. Axano, there's that word. Same word is found in Genesis 1.28. The gospel is increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And if I had time, I would close with this idea. It comes through human agency. Notice, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So, Jesus, through his resurrection, achieves and fulfills the commission originally given by God to man. And now, Daniel 7 Through salvation in Jesus, He restores this dominion back to men. But it's not just so that we can be saved. He created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, Ephesians 2.10. We are now the channel of this blessing through the gospel. And so as we function and act like Epaphras here in this passage, through the gospel, this gospel bears fruit and increases and fills the earth. Genesis 1, verse 26 and 28. That's a whole lot of information in a short period of time. But that's why we do the Great Commission. That's why we do it. It's not because we got a command here and a command there. It's the theme of the Bible. Let's pray.